session four, I'll, uh, I'll spare a bunch of review, but just the point of this class in light of a simple sound instruction of the day of the Lord, the second coming, the, uh, the, the resurrection of the dead in accordance with that reward on that day, a kingdom established and set up, given to the righteous that are resurrected, they're made righteous by the blood of the cross and they remain as faithful witnesses. In that context of a simple theology of the kingdom and the resurrection, without all the convolution of uh, Platonism and Gnosticism, you get a simple uh, context to place the activity of the church, the mission of the church, and the, uh, the function and form, the structure of the church within that context. And so the first three weeks we've just talked about, in light of the kingdom, in view of his appearing, what is the purpose of the church? And the purpose of the church, in light of the kingdom, worship, discipleship, and evangelism, very simply, awaiting the day of the Lord as pilgrims, sanctifying ourselves as pilgrims, evangelizing as pilgrims, rather than worship, uh, discipleship, and evangelism in light of an ethereal, uh, an ethereal, immaterial, heavenly destiny. And so just that basic difference in context radically shifts uh, how we view uh, our mission and purpose. And so today, the fourth session, you have uh, uh, point A, reiteration, sorry, the church is called to persevere in their calling to worship God and believe in His appointed Messiah, John 6. The work of God is to believe that the Father sent Him, sanctifying themselves in preparation for His kingdom. This is the will of God for you, that you would be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, and testifying to all the nations of the judgment and the restoration of the kingdom, Acts 1. However, perseverance in this calling is wholly dependent upon God and His grace by means of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And so today's session is on the means of grace and a theology of grace in light of the kingdom. And, and grace is a, it's a uh, strange topic. Number one, just being within Protestantism, there's not a lot of emphasis on a theology of grace. Uh, for a number of reasons, just because of history and because of theology. It is a fairly strong tradition within within uh, Catholicism, and it's fairly strong within Wesleyan tradition, which we'll hit why uh, in a bit. I made you a, one of the classic uh, John Wesley sermons that he did for his itinerant preachers. He compiled a, a, a a book of sermons for them, and the, the sermon number 16, The Means of Grace, is, is one of Wesley's uh, classics, and so I don't think we'll quite get there today, but anyway, so the the theology of grace is so central in the scriptures, especially the New Testament, because the light of the kingdom is so at hand and so clarified. I have a locked door. Somebody peering in that you get such an emphasis on grace. And generally, because grace is it's so prominent 
in the New Testament because it's so tied to the Holy Spirit, our destiny in the resurrection, and context of the kingdom. Grace is just, I mean, it's front and center everywhere. And it's not prominent in, in most modern teachings because the, the, the kingdom and the resurrection aren't prominent. And so there's nothing to really tie grace to, and there's no real practical necessity of it. So B, the Holy Spirit is given by God as a deposit of the grace that will be given to the saints at the revelation of Jesus. And so, like First Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, referencing your, uh, your eternal inheritance stored up for you in the heavens that you will receive at his coming, uh, that, the, that the saints, uh, he's, sorry, they search intently with the greatest care. Therefore, prepare your minds for actions. Be self, action, be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus is revealed. And so they saw the Holy Spirit as grace from God now as a deposit guaranteeing the grace that we would experience from God in the resurrection. And uh, second, or Titus 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God being... Uh, uh, the the Holy Spirit has been given to men, has appeared that will bring salvation in the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to, to ungodliness in this age that we might receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom as we wait for that blessed hope. Point one, grace, the Greek word is charis, and so I just put there the, the some Strong's info for you. On the Greek word, it's kind of a complex word. It's not complex; it's simple, but it 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 contains in it a variety of meaning. The same way in the English la- language, grace contains a variety of meaning. And so, if you just do a you know a dictionary.com search on grace, you'll get a bunch of different semantic fields within which grace is used. Uh, grace, as far as goodwill towards somebody, favor towards somebody. Uh, power and empowerment, etc. And so the Greek is the same way. However, the point is is that it's within a governmental context referring to the favor, goodwill, and joy because that's what the root is derived from. That's what charis is derived from the root of joy that a governor has towards his subjects. Um, And so in, in light of there's a throne above us at the height of creation ruling over everything with all power and love. He gives grace, favor, kindness because he has joy over us. Because he says, well done, good and faithful servant, he gives favor, kindness, and grace to that servant. And so to view the idea of grace, you have to have just kind of a big picture context of creation as a whole in which God is governing over creation and grace is given I mean grace is given in the same context as everything of of that great white throne over creation and so uh, so I put in a footnote there note the introduction and conclusion of almost every epistle in the New Testament and gave all the the footnotes where you have the epistles are introduced, the grace of our Lord Jesus and of God the Father be with you, the grace and peace, and they're all concluded the same way. And it's not just religious or literary rhetoric. It really is 
And it's not, obviously, it's not just at the beginning and end of the epistles. It's scattered throughout all the epistles and the writings and the thought because it is central in their minds that in light of the darkness of this age and your identity as one who will inherit the kingdom and you are in the world but not of it, your primary commodity on the earth is grace. That you have the grace and favor of God that not just Christian cliche, thereby the grace of God, go I. Because the key to the situation is where do you go? You going to the kingdom rather than you go floating on a cloud. And so thereby the grace of God in this age, go I unto my inheritance in the age to come. And if it's just there I go unto the kingdom, like God will very radically quickly look at you like he did Peter and you are going to lay down your life for me. You are the most radical, awesome. But I tell you, by morning time, you'll deny me three times and not lay down your life for me because you really don't understand how much you really do live life for yourself. So, um, all right, so page two. I'm on a mission to get to the apostolic prayers by 12 o'clock. All right. <laughs> so I gave you a, uh, a few examples there on page two. The Greek word charis at the bottom is used in translation for the Hebrew word chen, which is uh, generally uh, uh, translated favor. In the footnote there, I just put a, a I felt like it was a good uh, commentary from Harper's Bible Dictionary just on the Old Testament and New Testament continuity that it's uh, it's the same idea even though it's a, a different uh, word. The Septuagint in the footnote employs this word to translate the Hebrew word, me, word root meaning favor. Thus Noah found favor before the Lord. Jacob sought favor in the eyes of Esau. Similarly, similarly those showing favor do gracious deeds, for example, showing kindness to the poor or generosity to all living was an act of grace. Likewise, the Psalms speak confidently of God's graciousness in hearing prayers, healing, rescuing the oppressed, and giving the law, forgiving sin, rescuing the weak, and the like. Except for its emphasis on Jesus, the New Testament understanding of grace re resembles that just surveyed. The divine grace rests on the infant Jesus who sub subsequently grows in grace, speaks gracious words, and like a divine man passes unharmed through a hostile mob. Followers of Jesus such as Stephen, full of grace, do signs and wonders. Likewise, Paul assumes that recipients of God's grace will perform deeds of grace. And so the point is, is that Old Testament and New, God shows favor and grace to his servants who do his will because they will inherit the kingdom. And they walk in righteousness, self-constraint, love, in recognition that God will punish the wicked and all those uh, who uh, do selfishly. So point three on page three. Because of God's righteousness and favor and light of humanity's sin and wickedness, the grace we receive for him, from him, the, chars, the, the Greek word for grace, charis, is often translated gift. 
and so the there's two main Greek words for gift. There's charisma, charisma, and there's uh, doma, doron, dorea, different uh, variants of the same word that is the traditional Greek word for gift is, uh, is the latter. However, the grace that we receive from God in light of humanity's rebellion and how wicked we really are the the favor and the gift of the Holy Spirit is really seen as grace from God, a gift from God. And so uh, charisma is uh, almost universally translated as gift, even though it's just a variant on grace. But it really gives perspective when you read through the scriptures and you see the gift of the Holy Spirit and you can interpret that as grace and favor and kindness from God to strengthen us in our sojourning. Um, so, page four, a few examples. Romans five is just a real clear interaction between the two Greek words for uh, gift. But the free gift in the NASB, a lot of the translations just translate the word exactly the same. The NASB translates charisma as free gift and Dorea as, uh, as just gift to, to distinguish between the two most of the time. Romans 5, but the free gift, the gift of grace, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many, uh, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, we're talking about Adam obviously, death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life in the resurrection through the one Jesus Christ. And so it's just an interchange of the kindness of God to subject himself to death as an atonement that we might receive grace from him and live forever in the resurrection by the Holy Spirit. And how much more that he's gifted us with a deposit of the Holy Spirit in this age. I mean, he could have died for us and given us a sure promise that you have a better uh, atonement and a better sacrifice that guarantees your resurrection, but how much more kindness and favor he's given us to give us a deposit of the grace of God we'll receive in the resurrection in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's just, it's just awesome, you know? <laughs> Uh, Romans 12, we have different gifts, charisma, according to the grace given us, charis. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Now there, there are a variety of gifts, charismata, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Are all apostles, all prophets, all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues and interpret, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he goes on to uh, talk about the context, the most excellent way of walking out the grace of God in this age and love, that the gifts will be 
multiplied in effect and testimony if we actually do walk our lives in service, humility, and love to other people. Um, And so it's really like it's just helpful to look at the Greek word charismata and go or charisma and, and look at it as we have received graces of the Holy Spirit. And there are a variety of graces given by God in the Holy Spirit to sustain the church in faithful sojourning and a witness unto her inheritance in the kingdom. Um, 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, a grace by the Holy Spirit, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, his charis, whoever speaks, etc., For grace is thus simply divine favor and power given by God, the supreme ruler over creation in this age and the age to come. And so in the age to come, we will receive grace from God in the resurrection, in the binding and casting of Satan into the abyss, in the freeing of humanity from the tyranny of wickedness, both the powers in the heavens and on the earth, And in this age, we receive grace from God. So in the age to come, we'll get the big, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your inheritance. In this age, we get the well done, good and faithful servant. Here is grace to sustain you under your inheritance in your sojourning. So for example, 1 Corinthians 1, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And we know the testimony is concerning the day of, of the Lord in the following verse, verses. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual grace, in any spiritual charisma, in any grace by the Spirit, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. And then Second uh, Timothy 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, and later the context is clearly faith in, the, in uh, Jesus as the Messiah, the day of the Lord, etc. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, look, Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the grace of God, the gift of God in you, the deposit of God. Fan it into flame, in, 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 which we'll get in, in a while, employing the means of grace to keep the grace of God alive in your heart. The gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Because we live now as we will in the age to come. Because in the age to come, we will receive in full what our deposit is. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, which is, which is why I suffer as I do. I am not ashamed, for I know that I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard you by the gift of God imparted to you in the laying on of hands until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
So point C, again, we're just, we're setting the grace of God and a theology of the grace of God in light of the kingdom and in light of the mission of the church in this age, the mandate of the church in this age to be a faithful witness. And so therefore, God gives grace for the church to be a faithful witness. And so I, I just broke it up into the same threefold kind of mandate, worship and faith, discipleship, sanctification, evangelism, proclamation, and just gave a few examples of each that this is why God gives grace. And it's, I'm saying this strategically because when usually, I mean, like John Wesley battled in his day, he's just arguing that there's a need for grace. <laughs> it's not all just dominated reformed Calvinists. God has absolute sovereignty and he'll just do what he does. There's actually a need for grace and a need for you to press in to receive grace and employ the means to receive grace. And so a lot of the church just lives in that world where it's just kind of like, I'm just living life. I don't really need grace. And their lives are getting utterly destroyed and they don't even see it. But uh, in light of those who desire the grace of God to walk in faithfulness and appreciate the grace of God, it has to be set in light of the kingdom. And in light of the kingdom, the coming kingdom in the day of the Lord, this is what we ask for God, for His grace. This is why we ask for it, because in those circles where people do ask for the Holy Spirit and ask for the grace of God, you just get this spectrum of things asked for to use the power, grace, and Holy Spirit of God to do things that are just completely antithetical to what God is doing in this age versus the age to come. And so... uh, So, for example, Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so the grace is given to stand in faith and hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 4, There's one body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope when you're called. But to each of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it in context to that one, one body, one faith, one hope, one baptism, etc. For when he, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts. He gave charismata to men. He gave graces to men by the Holy Spirit after he descended to the depths. And then verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, that the body might be built up. So again, we get a little bit of the discipleship and the proclamation in here. To be built up until we reach the unity of faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. And so the grace of God is given to the church to raise up the different ministries of the Holy Spirit and the callings of people within the church to build the church up in the knowledge and faith of the Son of God that they might remain faithful in their worship and and, uh, and and belief in him, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which I believe is the resurrection of the dead. Hebrews 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, no theological humor in here. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, because that was a massive statement. Anybody familiar with discussion on this verse? 
Okay, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And so um, the, the faith of Hebrews 3 and 4 is the millennial rest, the entering into the rest of God in, in the coming kingdom. Uh, so, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace. Okay? So this is their point, is that they see God ruling over the heavens and Jesus sitting at his right hand, not to make the two different sizes, whatever, but that this thing is a throne of grace towards humanity. It was a throne of grace in the beginning, and it will be a throne of grace to the righteous at the day of the Lord. It will always be a throne of grace. And so let us approach God in this age as He restrains from executing His day and receive from Him mercy because we trust and believe that the only way we're surviving the day of the Lord and that... Not only that we're surviving the day of the Lord, but we're surviving trial temptation in this age is that we receive grace from Him. And so it really is the way you see how you will stand before God on the day of the Lord in the crisis is how you will walk out before God now in the little crisis trial and and temptation. And if you rely upon yourself and your own strength and your own righteousness now, You'll do the exact same thing when you stand before God, justifying yourself and all of your mess-ups, you know. And so it really is the way we stand before God on the day of the Lord, before the judgment seat, and say, you know me, you knew me. It It never was about how awesome I was. I always was broken. I was never righteous. And you always did justify me. And give me grace and favor, and I ask for it right now. And it's the only way we receive a rich welcome into the uh, eternal kingdom. So, uh, point two, discipleship, sanctification. Now I commit, to, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among, among those who are sanctified. Acts 20, I haven't, I haven't uh, whatever Paul says right before that, I haven't backed down from fully preaching the kingdom of God among you, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace that can build you up and give you an inheritance in that kingdom amongst those who are sanctified. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you in context to your, uh, your temptation and trial. Titus 2, the grace of God teaches us and leads us in righteousness, teaching us to say no to ungodliness in this age uh, as we wait for the hope. Evangelism and proclamation, great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was on them to strengthen and embolden their testimony. Romans 1.5, through him and for his name's sake, for his name's sake, to declare that he is the one whom God has appointed judge of the living and the dead. He is the Messiah, Christ Jesus. We receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. 
Romans 15, I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to proclaim his word to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 15:10. but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them to become a Gentile to the Gentile, a Jew to the Jew, etc., He says, I worked harder than all of them proclaiming the gospel, but yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Galatians 1, but when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so, I mean, you just get in a little, even though I've blasted through it, you get a a slice of the multitude and the centrality of the grace of God in context to this age and walking in faithfulness. And it really is, it just, you begin to see your life enveloped by the kindness and favor of God in every aspect of your life, now as it will be in the age to come. And so that's my point in this. If you want to pull out your diagram, where's the diagram? I don't have my diagram. So if you want to pull out your diagram for this class, which I haven't been faithful enough to put before you constantly to burn in your mind, I apologize. I'll remedy that. Um, so if you pull out your diagram, you have the threefold, and prayer is the means by which the grace of God is given the arrows that go into the threefold pur- purpose. Prayer is the means by which we receive grace to walk, our, walk out our calling in faithfulness and righteousness. And so uh, grace really does just surround us, and at every level it's the only hope uh, that, that we really will stay on a narrow path. Because if there's hope in anything else, the Lord will make sure that we get off that narrow path. It's just the way he tests human beings. From the garden to this very day, he tests human beings. And if they rely upon anything but God, he will push them off the path to show them that it's not by their own works and righteousness. Romans 11 is pounding on me right now. Oh, the depths... Back up. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, because God is the one who hardened the Jews, who sought righteousness by their own works in accordance with the law. So he hardened them to show them that their inheritance of the kingdom and the resurrection was not by their own righteousness, but by the grace of God for salvation as a gift of God. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now become disobedient in order that you, that, that they too may now, in, sorry, so that they have now become disobedient in order that they too now may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men, Jew and Gentile, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And so you get 9 through 11 where Paul is addressing the issues of Jew-Gentile in the Roman church. 
And he's just pressing in 9 through 11 in context of Romans 8 and receiving the resurrection that he bound the Jews over to disobedience because of their self-righteousness, thinking they could attain to the redemption of their body in works of their own righteousness. He bound them over and in grace and kindness He brought you Gentiles in that you might be raised from the dead. But if you become arrogant like them, he will bind you over to disobedience. And then he says he bound them over to disobedience to have mercy on them to bring them back in so that he will have mercy. He will bind all to disobedience, all peoples on the earth to disobedience, and then he will have mercy on them all who repent in context to the grace of God given them. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments, His paths beyond tracing out. How unsearchable, how He's governed over creation since their rebellion. How He's how he has tested them, how he drove them across the earth because of their rebellion, confusing them, and continually, just in kindness, humbling them, humbling them, screaming at them, calling them to repent of all of their wickedness in light of the judgment of the day of the Lord, giving light to some, the Jews, and then when they become arrogant like the Tower of Babel, he humbles them and he gives light to the Gentiles. And now the Gentiles have all become radically arrogant and wicked and will rise up at the end of the age. And he will humble the Gentiles and have mercy on all in the resurrection. And Jew and Gentile will dwell together in the age to come in humility and meekness and and righteousness. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or or who has ever given God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him and through him and to him are all things, past, present, and future, as he governs over creation. To him be the glory. To him be the honor as a righteous, loving, and all-powerful ruler over everything forever and ever and ever. Is anybody else feeling it? <laughs> I'm just like, that's just awesome. So D, this then is the context for the apostolic prayers. And so we're fairly familiar in this context with the apostolic prayers. Most people, you know, never read A.W. Pink and, or Simpson or other people who pressed on the apostolic prayers and are kind of clueless with them. But the apostolic prayers are just the prayers that are prayed in the scriptures by the, by the apostle and the chief apostle himself, Jesus. But the apostolic prayers, you just get, I mean, it's just gold because you get the inside of this is what their heart is. This is what is driving their life because this is what they actually pray for. God is my witness that I pray for you continually. And you get a glimpse of what Paul and the apostles are praying for people. And it also just gives you clarity of this is what we're to be about. This is what the church is to be about individually and corporately. And this is how we build, structure ourselves in an unencumbered way. Um, The apostles knew their utter 
dependence upon God, and thus they pray diligently for the grace of God to rest on the community of faith. So 2 Corinthians 1, their utter dependence upon the grace of God in this age. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. He's delivered us from the trial in this age when he tests the heart of men, and he will deliver us on the day of the Lord when he will test every man's heart and expose the motives of every man's heart. Romans 2. So he has delivered us, he will deliver us, On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us in this age as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor, the charisma, the grace of the Holy Spirit granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And so this really is like if I just put in the footnote, all prayers can really just be summed up this way. God, give us grace that we might walk worthy of our calling in this age, imitating the age to come, walking worthy in our worship and faith and trust in you, walking worthy in our sanctifying ourselves and restraining and self-control in preparation for in righteousness, walking worthy in a bold proclamation and telling people about the day of the Lord that's coming so that we'll receive a rich welcome into the age to come, into the uh, eternal kingdom. So Ephesians 1, I'm just going to walk through the apostolic prayers because I really want to ground you guys in this, that this is what we're praying for. And because of the theology class, to give a context for the centrality and the anchor of the day of the Lord, the kingdom and the resurrection, establishing our identity as sojourners and pilgrims, witnessing to the age to come. Therefore, this is what we labor towards and we pray towards consistently. And so you get this threefold, you know, it kind of varies in your different prayers, which one they're pressing on. But it's one of these three, that your faith might be strengthened, that you might be established in righteousness and blamelessness, that you might proclaim the gospel boldly and in various uh, ways and flavors. So Ephesians 1 In context to the previous Ephesians, in the previous verses in Ephesians 1, where God is going to bring together the heavens and the earth and all the governance in the heavens and the earth under the headship of Jesus. And we've been been called accordingly and given a deposit, a seal of our inheritance in the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore I I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers in light of salvation in the kingdom to come, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, like he's just unfolded in the previous verses, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, that you may be strengthened in your faith. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
and the immeasurable greatness of his power is in accordance with the revelation of him and the calling that we're being called into and his inheritance of the saints, which is the resurrection. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe your inheritance, the hope to which you're called according, according to the work of his might? Or the NIV says, which is like the working of his power which he exerted in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. And so the hope of our calling is the same hope that God exerted in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. That he worked in Christ when he raised him and seated him at his right hand far above all principalities and powers and rulers. Not only in this age, but the age to come. So we have a similar hope. That God, that God exerted power, raised Jesus from the dead, and established Him in rulership and righteousness over creation, so also don't you know, 1 Corinthians 6, that you will inherit the earth, that you will rule over the world, you'll rule over angels, you'll be, the power will be exerted by the Holy Spirit, you'll be raised from the dead, you'll be seated with Christ as co-heirs with Him, ruling over creation in the age to come. Therefore, don't walk in unrighteousness. <laughs> Just throw that in. So, Philippians 1, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so you get the real, you know, the, the discipleship aspect pressed there. Colossians 1, because I was working over the apostolic prayers yesterday for about three hours in the prayer room, and I was like, I was, I was stuck on Colossians 1. It's just like the breadth and magnitude of Colossians 1. And then immediately after that, where he, you know, just works through the supremacy of Christ and all things being created through him and all things in the heavens and the earth, all principalities and, and powers being subjected to him and the glory of it. So this is what leads up to that. Anyway, so I was, it's just like, anyway. All right. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, heard of your faith, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so all wisdom and understanding given by the Spirit, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, may you be strengthened with power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and expectation of rejoicing in the resurrection, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you by the cross to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Did you just, I mean, it's just like, bam, 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 that you would have a revelation of the knowledge of God filled with wisdom and discernment by the Spirit that you could walk according to His will be, be filled with the fruit of righteousness, be blameless on the day of Christ. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> awesome. All right, <laughs> keep moving. Ephesians 3, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Okay, so Ephesians 3 is a little tricky because Ephesians 3 is obviously building off of his understanding of the kingdom and the resurrection established in chapter 1 
Chapter 2, he's called the Gentiles and been gracious to grant them inheritance in that salvation. Paul has been granted apostleship to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the gospel of chapter 1. And so he works into to, uh, chapter 3. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, the principalities in the heavens, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, to accomplish salvation by the atonement of the cross, to have mercy on the Jews and the Gentiles together in the cross, to, because, anyway, so in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your, which are your glory or to your glory, to, to that you might receive salvation. Verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family, family or from whom all fatherhood in the heavens and on the earth derive its name, Jew and Gentile, over all creation. I pray that out of his glorious riches, is the notes... Oh, I have the notes in the ESV. So that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you the riches of his glory, meaning his heavenly glory as he rules over creation, which will be established on the earth. And the glory of God will fill the whole earth. And he'll reign with his saints before his elders gloriously in Jerusalem, etc. So out of the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The spirit of Christ as a deposit and that faith in Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So the strengthening of faith the strengthening of the power of the Holy Spirit to comprehend that and to be rooted and grounded in the love. Um, So verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the faith, the saints, what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God, that you may receive the resurrection when he does bring salvation, which is backed up in the next verses. Now to him is, is, who is able to do immeasurably more or abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine or expect according to his power that is at work in us. The power of the Holy Spirit at work in us as a deposit According to that Holy Spirit, he will do beyond anything we can ever imagine. No eye has seen, no mind has ever comprehended the glory that will be established on the day of the Lord in the resurrection when we're, full, when we're filled with all the measure of the fullness of God in the Holy Spirit. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. To him be honor and glory as a righteous and good ruler over creation. From from now and forever and ever as we walk according to the Holy Spirit and we're filled with the Holy Spirit in the resurrection and God is vindicated on the day of the Lord as a righteous ruler in the midst of the wickedness and rebellion of man and all his selfish agenda will meet the wall 
on the day of the Lord of J-E-S-U-S, represented by T-E-D. Come on. That's awesome. As a prisoner for the Lord, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Having one hope, one faith, one baptism, and he is given grace by the Holy Spirit to build you up so that you will receive, that, so that you really will receive abundantly beyond anything you can imagine in glory on the day of the Lord. See what I'm talking about? That's awesome. Romans 15. May the God, okay, so this is helpful for a little context. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so it starts in Romans 13 where he's talking about the day of the Lord is at hand. Your salvation is near now than, than when you first believed. The night's almost over. The day's almost here. Live as in the daytime. And then he works through the strong and weak in chapter 14. And you bear with the weakness of the weak who do not have a, a solid faith and how the age to come will be, and they, therefore they don't have a solid lifestyle of living as in the daytime. And so they live according to all these, uh, all these particular commandments and the interpretation of those commandments, but the kingdom of God and the age to come in the daytime isn't about food and drink. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, we live accordingly. So, chapter 15, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope of our inheritance. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves to follow Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile, because that's where the clash comes in, that you have Gentiles who have greater revelation of the coming kingdom and therefore are walking in greater righteousness than Jews who don't have greater faith and who are weaker in their faith of what it will be like. And so they hold according to these particular rules but they don't walk according to the spirit of them righteousness peace and joy so therefore you guys walk in unity as you walk in christ jesus according to the hope that's set forth to you in the scriptures he says so so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the god and father of our lord jesus christ as it's written and he works through how even the these these scriptures show that God will have mercy on the Gentiles, the same that he will have mercy on the Jews, of those who, who are repentant. So verse 12, again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise and rule over the, over the nations. The Gentiles will put their hope in him. And so therefore, in the age to come, when the root of Jesse raises up, and the Jews and the Gentiles together put their hope in him, and he rules over them with righteousness, and they have unity. Therefore, live as in the daytime now. And he says then, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, as you trust in that day when God raises up the root of Jesse, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
overflowing with hope in the resurrection by, uh, by the power of the Spirit in you now. And then Thessalonians, this is where it starts to really roll. Night and day we pray most earnestly for you, that we may see you and again supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may the Lord of our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And so in context to the day of the Lord, may the Lord strengthen you in blamelessness and holiness and may he supply what's lacking in your faith concerning that day. Page 8, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming or the King James translates unto the coming. May he keep you blameless unto and at the, at the uh, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praying for grace that God would sanctify them and keep them blameless. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us likewise. Second Thessalonians 1, with this in mind, okay, so with this in mind, I'm going a little over if that's all right with you guys. Can I just finish to the bottom right here? All right, so with this in mind, Second uh, Thessalonians one. So with this in mind is verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction shut out from the presence of the Lord from the majesty of his power when he reigns on his throne in glory, on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and marveled at among all who have believed, glorified in the resurrection when the glory of God rests on them. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy or make you worthy by his spirit of his calling and that by, the, by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. This is kind of a tricky, it gets different translations, and I like the NIV, how it translates it. His point is, is that in light of the day of the Lord and what you're called to, may God strengthen you in everything you do as unto the Lord, in every act and the way you conform your life producing fruit in keeping with repentance concerning the day of the Lord. May he fulfill every act done in accordance with that faith and prompted by that faith. That this is how God will function in the age to come. He will serve people and wash their feet. And so therefore that faith prompts me to serve people and wash their faith. As I, your master, have done this, setting you an example, you do likewise. And so uh, John 13 is a picture of uh, every good purpose and act prompted by the faith of Jesus. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 2. So this is 
you got Second Thessalonians 1, and we just ended the last verse, so he launches into Second Thessalonians 2, concerning when he comes with his power, with the mighty angels, with flaming fire, and he throws the wicked in, and punishes the wicked everlasting. Don't let anybody confuse you that that day has come. All right? Because, number one, there's obviously still wicked people on the earth. But number two, there has to be the rebellion, the abomination that causes desolation. It's the primary marker of, of, uh, of the coming of the end of the age. And so he works through in chapter uh, two about that. And so then, in context to that, and their calling, and what's coming upon the earth, and the culmination, the rebellion of man, he says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and our God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. By his grace, through the scriptures, he gave us good hope and encouragement of our eternal calling. And so he says... um, our good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord, being chapter 1 and 2, the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as, as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked, men, wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And so in light of... The end of the, the day of the Lord, in light of your calling, may God establish you and strengthen you in your faith in that. May he direct your hearts, even in the midst of persecution and wickedness, because wicked men, when they do stuff to us, we, the, just the natural tendency is to repay evil for evil. And we conform ourselves to how we've been treated. And so in light of the suffering and trial I pray that God will give you grace to sanctify you, that you would treat the wicked like God is treating the wicked. You will walk in restraint, etc. Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6 are a couple of the lesser-known apostolic prayers, but it's the exact same thing. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. Ephesians 6, we pray on all occasions, pray for me also that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so I, may f- I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly. And so it's the exact same thing as Acts 4. When under persecution they gather together and say, Sovereign Lord who rules over the heavens and the earth and created everything, you spoke that this would happen, that men would persecute your anointed one, that they would persecute the Messiah, and they've done it at the first coming, at the suffering, they'll do it again at the second coming, but grant us grace that we may declare your word with boldness, extend your hand and confirm the message with signs and wonders. Grace access through prayer. Grace is given in response to prayer. This is really a critical point in, uh, in understanding the relationship between the two, prayer and grace, how and why they function together, and, uh, and uh, what the causes are for why people don't pray. I mean, it just comes right down to real nitty-gritty. I don't need to pray, so I don't pray. And it really is the 
how you see yourself in light of redemptive history as a whole really does determine how uh, how much you see your need of God and and uh, and God showing favor to you and uh, pouring grace out on you. So, um, so uh, a grace is given by God for the perseverance of the assembly and the fulfillment of its purpose and function. However, this grace is only received by prayer. Thus, prayer is the means of accessing grace unto faithfulness and perseverance in our calling. And so, uh, not that this is, I mean, it's fairly directly stated in a number of places, but it's uh, more of an argument of omission that it doesn't state, clearly doesn't state that anything else is a means of grace directly directly and so uh, this is uh, where I'm making my uh, assertion Um, page 9 just a few scriptures Luke 11 when you pray say father hallowed be your name your kingdom come give us our day give us this day our daily bread forgive us our sins etc etc so in light of prayer for the establishment of the kingdom he tells the uh, he tells the uh, the point of the prayer is, in light of the kingdom, you relate like this. You walk in surrender and obedience to God, dependence upon God for daily provision. You don't store up for yourselves and provide for yourself. And uh, he tells a parable about a man who uh, who goes to his neighbor and is persistent about it and is asking for bread and so he's clearly making the reference to provision in light of the kingdom and so this is how you walk in this age in the age of darkness in light of the kingdom because this age before the day of the lord really is about testing the hearts of men and uh and we'll see when john wesley john wesley writes on the means of grace, it really is a bizarre thing. So just put our diagram back up here for visual. So really this whole time right here, God is refraining from punishing the wicked, but you can look at this whole time period from the fall to the day of the Lord as a time of testing in which God is the one who is testing the hearts of, of, of humanity, and at the end, He will ultimately test humanity's heart by raising up uh, uh, and bringing to fullness the wickedness that is in their hearts and the Antichrist. And so from the tree of knowledge of good and evil all the way through the Antichrist is God testing the hearts of men to see what's really within them. And, uh, and so the bizarreness of this is that he designs during the age of darkness that in order to walk in righteousness... There's persistence in the place of prayer, asking for grace and provision. And so there's really no, in Luke 11, the whole passage, 
There's no discontinuity of thought between the prayer and light of the kingdom to walk in righteousness, forgiveness, daily provision, etc. And then the parable that this is how you stay on a narrow path into a warm, rich welcome into the kingdom is that you ask for daily bread in this persistent way. For he who asks will receive grace in this age and receive a warm welcome and receive the Holy Spirit at the day of the Lord. And so, um, you can mark out the second Luke 11. That was from the old notes that I just forgot. I put the, a little more in, forgot to delete the old one. Acts 1, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. And so clearly from verse 14, they interpret waiting for the gift as, as uh, uh, coming together in prayer. Which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so... They're clearly seeking God, and the prayer results in the gift of the Holy Spirit unto being a faithful witness until the kingdom of God is restored to Israel in light of that passage. Acts 4, likewise in context to the wickedness of man and the persecution that the disciples endure, they come together and they pray asking for greater grace, for greater faithfulness and boldness and witness. 2 Corinthians 1.8, on him we've set our hope and will continue to set, uh, and will continue, that he will continue to deliver us in light of the persecution in Asia. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on behalf for the gracious favor, the, the grace granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Hebrews 4, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Again, the approaching is prayer so that we may receive grace, mercy, and find grace during our time of need, during this period. <clears throat> James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, referencing the things that are not on uh, the heart of God, because this is really what it comes down to. This is why theology is important. To figure out what God is about and to conform your life to it. I mean, that, and, and the reason bad theology is disastrous is because it leads people to giving themselves and conforming their lives to the things that God is not about in this age, before the day of the Lord. You adulterous people, uh, do you suppose it's no purpose the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? He gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, those who ask. Alright, so uh, page 10. Many traditions have assumed things other than prayer, for example sacraments, to be the means of grace, thus diminishing the practical necessity of the church to organize itself around prayer, both individually and corporately. And so we talk through, in light of the kingdom, this is our purpose. In light of our purpose, we need grace. In light of grace, this is the means of grace. So the rest of the class is really designed around talking about the means 
of grace, prayer, and how to sustain the means of grace, which is prayer, unto a faithful witness, etc., etc. And this really is, you know, just in practical day-to-day life, this is where it ends up breaking down in people's lives because they end up giving themselves to the things that don't uh, produce grace in their lives. So I just put a, a couple... Uh, a uh, a couple uh, quotes here just to give you kind of standard definitions of the means of grace. Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary, an expression not used in Scripture, but employed one to denote those institutions ordained by God to be the ordinary channels of grace to the souls of men. These are the word, sacraments, and prayer, but in popular language, the expression is used in a wider sense to denote those exercises in which we engage for the purpose of obtaining spiritual blessing, i.e. grace. As hearing the gospel, reading the word, meditation, self-examination, Christian conversation, etc. And then uh, Charles Hodge, just because you don't get more mainstream reform than systematic theology of, of Hodge, the phrase is intended to indicate those institutions which God has ordained to be the ordinary channels of grace, i.e. of the supernatural influences of the Holy Spirit to the souls of men, the means of grace according to the standards of our church, the Reformed Church, are the word sacraments and prayer. And so uh, this is... Um, This is where it really gets contentious because historically the Catholic Church has seven means of, or or seven sacraments that they uh, describe as uh, the means of grace, which are down at the bottom, baptism, confirmation, uh, communion, penance, last rites, holy orders, and matrimony. And then at the Reformation, those seven were cut down to two, baptism and communion. And it was really the issue over communion that uh, that really split the Protestant Reformation because at the Marburg uh, colloquy or whatever, the Marburg gathering in 1529 when Luther and Zwingli came together, they agreed on 14 points of Reformed theology, Reformation theology, but the one they couldn't agree on was communion and what's going on at in communion. And so, you know, the the classic scene of Luther pounding his fist on the desk saying, S means S, you know, that this is my body. And, and, uh, and so it's, the drama of it is because there's no context for communion, and therefore there's no way to put communion in a simple context. And so it's really the one that is kind of, it gets lasered into focused on as the means of grace, but even communion is simply remember. Do this in remembrance of me. And you do it, and as you do it, you remember and you proclaim the Lord's death, 1 Corinthians 11. And so I would just argue that even communion in and of itself is just bread and juice. It's just bread and juice. And so obviously I've picked a side of Zwingli in the situation. But it's just bread and juice. And the power in the situation is in the remembering. It's in the prayer. Because that's what remembering is. And so uh, it's not 
super complicated. The power of taking communion is when you sit there and you pray and you thank God for his mercy and grace upon you in light of the day of the Lord and the judgment you deserve. And uh, and so that's just where I am. C, the necessity of prayer is also in proportion to the necessity of grace, which is determined by the magnitude of the calling, which in turn is determined by the end of that calling, i.e. salvation and eschatology. So the points under there is that the reason that there is a lack of prayer in the church is because the context of prayer. And so since you have a context here, so since you have this context where your end is an etherealized heaven, and your goal is only to you know, make it until you die or go to heaven. And the only, the only prerequisite is, uh, saying a prayer under the forgiveness of your sins. Then all you have to do is sustain enough grace to continue to say that prayer. And so I remember like when I came to the Lord, my whole family just, I mean, just exploded at me. And, uh, I remember my stepmother saying, you know, she just went off at me talking about how she knows Christianity, she knows Christians, she grew up around it, and all it is is people that go to church on Sunday, live like everybody else, and then go back to church and and pray pray prayer every Sunday to be forgiven and then continue to live like everybody else. And it really is because that's, that's uh, in light of... This worldview, that's all that needs to happen, is continuing to re-up the sinner's prayer, which guarantees your entrance into heaven. And so um, the you have kind of a spectrum on this where on the one end you have the extreme kind of logical reformed, once saved, always saved, that once the prayer is said, there is absolutely no need for grace or perseverance. And so on the far end of the spectrum, of the reform spectrum, there's absolutely zero need for grace and perseverance unto the entrance of the etherealized kingdom. And so therefore, that's why there's zero prayer in the situation. Or zero anything else that would connect us to the Lord. And you have Wesley in his day battling because after the Protestant Reformation, you really don't have much because of the kind of codifying of the the uh, Reformed theology. You really don't have much theology on grace at all until John Wesley. And John Wesley takes up the banner of Arminianism and uh, and one of his most famous sermons, he, he wrote a bunch of sermons for his itinerant pastors just to kind of set them on a solid foundation. And one of his most famous sermons is The Means of Grace, which is number 16 in that group of, of sermons. And so if you want to pull that out, I just wanted to point out a couple things. I love John Wesley. <laughs> He's so solid. And so... Like what John Wesley is battling, and you get the feel because it seems kind of like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, Wesleyanism has really spread uh, 
throughout the earth through uh, through a number of different streams in the body, um, primarily Pentecostal charismatic, and and so combined Wesleyan Pentecostal charismatic, you have I, I would say probably half of the church uh, in that stream, and so. But what he's battling is just half of his sermon is just arguing that we need to employ the means of grace, that we need grace. Because in his context, he's battling against the hard reformed theology that really doesn't, there's really no need for grace because you're guaranteed uh, a ticket either way. So on the first page, but there are many, there are, but are there any ordinances now since life and immortality were brought to light by the gospel, are there under the Christian dispensation any means ordained by God as the usual channels of grace? And so he goes on, this question could never have been proposed in the apostolical church unless by one who openly avowed himself to be a heathen, the whole body of Christians being agreed that Christ had ordained certain outward means for, for conveying his grace into the souls of men. So he's just saying... It wasn't even like a question in the early church of if you gave yourself to prayer and fasting, seeking the Lord, uh, dwelling in the scriptures, etc. There's just no like, there's no question uh, about whether this, but in his day, obviously there was. Um, and then he goes in, the, the rest of the first main point is just talking about the abuses of the means of grace because that's a lot of why the, the Reformation was trying to avoid the abuses of, uh, of monasticism that abused the means of grace. So page two, second major point, in the following discourse I propose to examine at large whether there are any means of grace by means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, actions ordained by ordained of God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to men preventing, justifying, or sanctifying grace. So he's got his own uh, system of, of, uh, of uh, how God uh, shows favor to human beings before, during conversion, and after. Uh, I use this expression, means of grace, because I know none other and because it has been generally used in the Christian church for many ages, in particular by our own church, which directs us, the Anglican church, which directs us to bless God both for the means of grace and the hope of glory and teaches us that a sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace and a means whereby we receive the same. The chief of these means of grace are prayer, whether in secret with the great or with the great congregation, individually or corporately, searching the scriptures, which I would argue searching the scriptures is, the, is one of the pathways to prayer because the Pharisees searched the scriptures intently, but they didn't actually pray, um, which implies reading, hearing, meditating thereon, and receiving the Lord's Supper, eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of Him. And so again, I would say the point of the Lord's Supper is just to bring us together under... It's like we have an event that simply brings us together and in the event refocuses us on the day of the Lord. And that we are together as a people... Not because we have it all together, not because we all think exactly alike, not because whatever, whatever. 
we're coming together in light of the day of the Lord and our common unity is servants of the Lord. That's our common unity, that we are living in light of the day of the Lord and that we are common servants to a common master and that he's had mercy on us, etc. Um, and these we believe to be ordained of God as the ordinary channels of conveying his grace to the souls of men. And then, ooh, just put that underneath because the next paragraph is so intense, but we'll get to that next session. So, um, theology of grace, we hit that. Page 11. However, if the church is calling us unto a real kingdom with a real government, with a real system of rewards and punishments, then much grace is needed and thus much prayer, not only for forgiveness, but for faithfulness, perseverance unto the fullness of our inheritance, the fullness of the proclamation to the world. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. And so if you remember when we've worked through the whole uh, chapter in Hebrews 10 and the context, it's so clearly the day of the Lord and the inheritance and rejoicing in our eternal possession. So let us, in light of that, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, to employing the means of grace in our life, that we walk in the Holy Spirit in righteousness before God, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, meeting together to pray, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. This is more Paul's individual, and so... Paul writing to the Hebrews is saying, do not give up meeting together corporately in prayer. And then Philippians 3, you get his heart. Do not give up uh, individually in your own life in prayer. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so in light of the kingdom and my calling to walk as Jesus did, even in suffering and persecution, restraining from wrath, declaring the gospel. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have, ta to have taken hold of it, meaning I don't consider that it's guaranteed to me. All right? Because I can preach the gospel and still be disqualified. And so at the end of his life, after he's fought the good fight, talking to Timothy, he can be fairly assured that a crown is laid up for him. But the crown of righteousness laid up for you and in your inheritance in the kingdom really is contingent, not only upon your content con repentance, but continued perseverance in repentance, producing fruit in keeping with it. Because the, the seed is planted concerning the kingdom and many seeds... Nobody, people just reject it, don't believe it's going to happen. Many seeds spring up with joy that we're going to be raised from the dead. But then when trial and persecution comes, there's no perseverance. And then many people are dragged down by the cares of uh, this age and the, and, uh, and the cares of life in this age, etc. But then others continue to conform their lives 
to the pattern of redemptive history. Conform their lives to the pattern of redemptive history. And so this is what Paul is saying. I don't consider myself as to taking hold of it. Like he says to Timothy, you, young man, flee from all these things. In light of his kingdom and appearing, many men preach false doctrine, etc. But you flee from these things and take hold of the eternal life uh, promised to you. So I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. It's not guaranteed to me. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind in my own failures, accomplishments, whatever, whatever, straining toward what is ahead in light of my calling and the resurrection and the kingdom, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, to walk in the grace of God and seek the Lord diligently, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so, again, you end up, based on how you see redemptive history, prayer becomes the tool for grace. But what is grace the tool for? And that's what it really comes down to. What is grace the tool for? It's finishing the race as a servant of Christ, not a servant of yourself and your own life. And all the things that drive men to self-promotion, exaltation, etc. And so it's uh and so again, prayer the point of prayer, which we'll get into the next se- uh, session, is that it's the means of grace that we might walk uh, in our calling. D, prayer thus becomes the central feature of the assembly as we work out our calling and election with fear and trembling. Matthew 24, in light of the day of the Lord and the second coming, this is the exhortation that Jesus gives, gives us to keep watch, to pray that we might not fall into temptation. Keep watch, uh, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. And so uh, Luke 21, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. So Luke 21 you can kind of interpret the parable of Matthew 24 of uh, watching the house. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the, of the whole earth. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to walk in righteousness and uh, be faithful as a, uh, as a uh, witness and servant of the Lord. Uh, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Watchful for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another, etc. In light of the kingdom, which is uh, at the end of... Oh, this was sweet. I remember working through this last week. He says, in light of the end of the age, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace... Whoever speaks, okay, so for the sake of the end of all things is near for this, stay watchful and sober for the sake of your prayers that you may walk in the grace of God that he doles out in varied ways. 
that we might love each other and spur one another on in righteousness and love. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies him, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. And there's just that, the doxological response. It was tripping me out. Because you get, you know, the exhortation to pray, like Matthew 6, this is how you should pray. That the day of the Lord would come, that you would receive your inheritance, that you would walk faithfully between now and then, because to Him belongs all dominion, power, the kingdom, glory, honor, whatever. I don't know. Lost my... So, First uh, Peter 5 when the chief shepherds of shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, referencing the age of darkness that we're in. Resist him, uh, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who will sustain you through the suffering, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you in the resurrection. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Referencing the uh, coming kingdom of glory second peter three but in keeping with his promise we are looking forward to a new heaven a new earth the home of righteousness so then dear friends since you're looking forward to this make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him bear in mind that our lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother paul also wrote you with the wisdom that god gave him though he's difficult to understand and wicked men pervert it. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. And the uh, also translated both now and to the day of eternity, to the day of the Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God that you have given us. We thank you for the hope of the grace of God to be revealed to us. We ask you, God, that you would stir that grace, that you would, that you would supply what's lacking in our faith, that it would be real, that it wouldn't just be theory or idea, but the day of the Lord would be real, that it would conform our lives, God, that we really would love people, not just outwardly, but inwardly, God, that our hearts would be filled with love and that like good trees, we would produce fruit out of the overflow, that our mouths would pour forth righteousness and love that is on the inside rather than wickedness, malice, envy, jealousy, and everything that comes out of the flesh of man, God. We ask you to establish us by the grace of God that we might stand before you, Jesus, that we might stand before you, Jesus, righteous on that day, and that you might declare over us, well done, good and faithful servant, that we wouldn't be disqualified from what we have preached. We ask you for mercy, God. We do not rely on ourselves. We ask you to keep us on a narrow path. 
Keep us from that wide road of destruction in the name of Jesus. Amen.